a record three-day total of new COVID infections. The virus is not stopping. Dr. Henry's call to clamp down on non-essential travel. More schools closed due to COVID. There are ideas about uh, where we may uh, revise some guidelines, either regionally or provincially. The province's priority to keep classrooms open, even as parents push back. And a tragic turn of events for an expectant mum. There was nothing wrong with Isla. There was nothing wrong with me. This was preventable. What happened at the hospital that led to the death of her baby? You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. We begin with what continues to be a pretty dire COVID-19 situation in this province. And BC has once again set a new record high number of cases. Each day this weekend, more than 600 cases of the virus were confirmed. That's right. We have 1,959 new cases since Friday afternoon. That brings our total number of cases to 22,944. Sadly, nine more people have died from the virus. 181 people are in hospital. That number is up by 14. And 57 people are now in the ICU, an increase of seven. We have 6,279 active cases and close to 11,000 people are currently in self-isolation. Now, most of those new cases are in the Fraser Health Authority. So let's bring in Keith Baldry to talk a little bit more about that and, and give mm -hmm. us a more regional breakdown of the numbers. Keith? Yeah, I think it's important to keep looking at our geographical breakdown that's sort of been entrenched along certain patterns for weeks now. Take a look at the numbers of this record number of cases just over the weekend. Again, Surrey, uh, Fraser Health, and in particular Surrey, continue to have the most cases, 70% in Fraser, and again, most of that is in Surrey, 23% in Vancouver Coastal. That's been a fairly steady number, as is Interior Health. Interestingly enough, a bit of an uptick now on Vancouver Island. There are now, on top of that, 41 cases, 99 active cases on Vancouver when we had, I think, about 10 about a month ago. So again, that, that geographical breakdown has been pretty consistent uh, for a number of weeks now and again raises interesting questions about uh, potential uh, regional restrictions aimed at Fraser Health and to a lesser degree Vancouver Coastal Health. Now, one of the issues that came up today with Dr. Bonnie uh, Henry is an issue that just won't go away. What about a mandatory mask wearing uh, order from Dr. Henry? Her view is, and she actually has a uh, op-ed piece out today explaining her position here, but our basic position is, look, uh, the virus is spreading in places where you don't wear masks, and that's in private homes and at parties and in gatherings indoors where masks simply aren't an option or even something that's considered real realistic in the in physical setting inside a home. Here's Dr. Henry. The mask mandate is not in and of itself something that has made a difference in terms of transmission. Many of the settings that we are talking about are settings where people would not naturally wear a mask, like in your home or at a party. So these are things we have to, to take into account. We also know that when there's a fine um, uh, uh, scheme set out, that we know that certain populations are disproportionately targeted. Now, her op-ed piece will be published in a number of newspapers, I think, tomorrow and in the coming days. And one of the main points she makes is there is a de facto uh, ma mass mandate at play now anyways because businesses have to have safety plans posted. And if they can't keep their physical distance, they are required to uh, require employees and customers to wear masks. But I have a feeling this is a debate that's not going to go away anytime soon as those cases continue to mount. I would agree with that. Keith, thank you.
So with BC's COVID case numbers spiking and a growing number of exposures and outbreaks in schools, teachers and parents are calling for the government to take further action to ensure student safety. As Richard Zussman reports, some of the demands include smaller class sizes, yes, a more robust mandatory mask policy, or even starting the Christmas break early. Schools are closed, COVID cases rising, an education system on high alert. We need action right now. We need action today. And so we are looking to government to reduce class sizes in the Fraser Health Authority. Schools are shutting down. Cambridge Elementary closed for two weeks due to an outbreak. Abbotsford Christian the latest, functionally closing for two weeks due to staffing challenges. And many across Fraser Health and even into the rest of the province suggesting an early winter break may be the reset needed. Most parents are saying, you know, let school out a bit early, maybe a week, maybe two weeks early so that we can get a control over this. But there are concerns moving kids out of the classroom and back home would not address the issue of social gatherings or help those desperate for the school system to stay open. There are many essential workers in our community and finding um, places uh, for children to be safely during the day needs to be considered. British Columbia is watching closely what other jurisdictions are doing. Ontario says they will keep kids in the classroom right up until the Christmas break, but they very well could extend that Christmas break into January if they can't get COVID cases under control. We're going to look most closely at what's going to make a difference in the different health regions, uh, working closely with uh, school districts about whether something like that uh, might be advisable. There are currently 116 schools on the active exposure list province-wide, with only a handful leading to transmission of the virus. What the province won't say is how many more transmissions need to take place before an entire region or province starts closing the doors to more schools. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. An outbreak at a care home in White Rock has now spread to nearly 40 people. In a letter to families, Retirement Concepts, which operates the White Rock Seniors Village, says 23 residents on the third floor of the building tested positive for COVID-19. 16 staff members have also tested positive, and they're now in self-isolation. There is an independent living area there, which is so far remains COVID-free, but no friends or family are allowed to visit, and residents are being told to only go out if it is essential. The B.C. man who has repeatedly thumbed his nose at COVID restrictions, claiming the pandemic is a hoax, was in court today to answer to three counts of violating the Quarantine Act. Grace Key reports on the bizarre claims he made before the judge. Mackin Singh Parhar greets supporters outside the new Westminster courthouse. He faces three counts of contravening the Quarantine Act. Representing himself, he's fighting the charges. I'm here under duress. I'm forced to be here. Um, you know, our freedoms are at stake here. He filed several claims with Flat Earth Vancouver, signed by a fingerprint. The rules of civil procedure do not apply to... The Parhar Court, that's a court that I established. It's not really quarantine, it's self-imprisonment, right? He was openly flouting the law at a downtown Vancouver rally. He was supposed to be self-isolating after returning from a flat earth convention in the U.S. So I'm glad I had it. One meetup at my yoga studio before I closed. Parhar is no stranger to controversy. He had his business license suspended in March for failing to comply with COVID safety regulations for his Delta hot yoga studio. Man, they were like 
freaking out. A couple of weeks later, the COVID-19 denier and flat earth believer also posted videos of himself at a drive through testing center in Burnaby. Just trying to see where I should go. Cardiac, where's respiratory? And another walking through Royal Columbian Hospital. He said he was investigating whether the pandemic was real. But let's be clear. The overwhelming majority of people in this province know that the earth is round, not flat, that COVID is not a hoax, it's real, and that the uh, penalties under the Quarantine Act are severe. Parhar is now awaiting the date for his hearing. Under the Quarantine Act, he could face fines up to $750,000 or six months in jail. Grace Key, Global News. A number of questions are being raised after Chilliwack MP Mark Strahl bestowed an honour on controversial Chilliwack school trustee Barry Newfeld. Newfeld was given the Chilliwack Hope Community Hero Award for, quote, going above and beyond to make the community a better place during the pandemic. However, Newfeld has made headlines for a social media post that suggested the World Health Organization can't be trusted on COVID-19 because it supports abortion rights. Another of his posts falsely suggests Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, is transgendered. In a statement, Strahl's office says that everyone who was nominated received an award, and the award was not intended as endorsement of any recipient's personal views. Burnaby Hospital's emergency ward remains closed after a fire broke out Sunday evening in a building which houses the hospital's mental health services. Catherine Urquhart has more on the battle to douse the blaze and the impact on patients. It was just after 10 p.m. Sunday when fire crews raced Burnaby General Hospital, scene of a three-alarm fire in the Cascade building. 58 firefighters battled the flames and smoke while helping to pull 18 patients from the building. Quite honestly, my 34 years of uh, being a firefighter, that has to be some of the most dangerous firefighting I've ever seen. They had to go down into a basement. They had to make a long stretch. Uh, they said they encountered heavy fire and smoke as they were going the whole way. The rescued patients were transferred to other hospitals in the region. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but smoke damage is substantial. Well, the fire did not damage the emergency department. We have temporarily closed the department while we assess the damage air quality. Closure of Burnaby General's emergency department will put additional pressure on other hospitals. And for now, it's unclear how long it may be closed. We're doing everything that we can to get air quality testing uh, as quickly as possible. So we should be able to have a better sense of what that looks like in the next 24 hours. The fire was sparked in an area of the hospital that delivers mental health services. The exact cause remains under investigation. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A 12- and a 10-year-old have been identified as suspects in connection to vandalism that shut down a Maple Ridge school. Ridge Meadows RCMP were called to Fairview Elementary School on Sunday morning after a motion alarm was triggered during a break-in. A walkthrough revealed a significant property damage problem inside the building. The school has been shut down now for repairs and classes have been moved online for the week. School officials say it's still unclear when the building will reopen. A GoFundMe campaign has been set up to help classrooms affected. The Ministry of Children and Family Development is also now involved in the case. 
Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou and her legal team were back in court today as her fight against extradition to the U.S. drags on. Today, a key witness to Meng's December 2018 arrest at YVR was to be cross-examined by Meng's lawyers. However, citing legal advice, now retired RCMP Staff Sergeant Ben Chang refused to testify. Meng is facing charges of bank fraud in the U.S. Her lawyers are arguing her extradition should be dismissed due to alleged abuses of process. We are experiencing some stormy weather or expecting some stormy weather overnight and into tomorrow morning. And a wind warning is already in effect. We'll have details about some ferry cancellations that will be announced very shortly in a moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's check in with senior meteorologist Christy Gordon now is tracking this system. When's it going to hit, Christy? Well, we're already seeing the rainfall from this system, but it's really the winds that we're concerned about, Chris, and those are going to pick up overnight tonight, and we'll see the strongest through the early morning and morning hours, depending on your location. Here's a look at the warnings that are in effect. We're talking about gusts up to 100 kilometers an hour, certainly on the outer coast, but even on the inner coast. So that's the east coast of Vancouver Island and the Sunshine Coast. Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour. Now, when we get winds like this, we get widespread power outages down trees down power lines certainly branches and delays in the ferries if not cancellations so uh this is tonight and tomorrow morning when i come back though we're going to break it down region by region and in terms of when you can expect those strongest winds it sounds good we'll check in a little bit later on and more information on those ferry cancellations we just heard from deborah marshall with bc ferries who has confirmed the three major lower mainland routes will be affected to wasson to swartz bay 7 and 9 a.m. canceled tomorrow morning. And then Tawasson Duke Point, 5.15 and 7.45 a.m. canceled tomorrow morning. Horseshoe Bay to Departure Bay, 60, uh, 6.15 and 8.25 a.m. sailings have been canceled. So check the BC Ferries website for more information. Well, there is cautious optimism in the search for a COVID-19 vaccine. Trial success for U.S. drug maker Moderna and why its vaccine is even more promising than Pfizer's. That's next on the News Hour. New details in the Nova Scotia shooting rampage offer a glimpse into the mind of the gunman. That's coming up on the News Hour. Plus, an exercise in futility. The decommissioned U.S. Dam preventing salmon from getting back to B.C. and why Canadians want it demolished. That's later. But first, there are concerns tonight about the accuracy of B.C.'s COVID-19 positivity rate. While the province's top doctor stands by the Centre for Disease Control data, Aaron MacArthur has more on what mathematicians say may be throwing the numbers off balance. As the cases continue to climb, so does testing for COVID-19. Over the weekend, more than 30,000 tests conducted province-wide. On Monday, according to the government, the positivity rate, 6.6%. But a mathematician has concerns about that number. How accurate is it? If we want to think about the positivity rate in terms of testing, the question is what goes into it. According to Jens von Bergman, the numbers might be skewed by the volume of private tests, including those for the film industry. Very complex. According to some reports, as many as 30,000 tests a week are needed just for Hollywood North. The Ministry of Health wouldn't provide an exact number, but says all of those tests are included in the daily reports. In BC, the positivity rate is simple math. The number of tests done divided by the number of positive cases. As an example, if 100 people are tested and there are three cases, the rate is 
But according to the BC CDC's own guidelines, mass testing people with a low likelihood of having the disease, like the film industry, is not useful. And according to Von Bergman, eliminating those tests would push up the positivity rate. And if we look at it this way, the positivity rate in BC, BC wide, is about 10% right now. So that is taking the number of positive cases, the people that tested positive, divided by just the number of people tested, as uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada provides. And that is substantially higher and quite worrying. Either way, the positivity rate is much too high, already near 10% in the Fraser Health region, where a bulk of the film industry is located in Metro Vancouver. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. For the second time in as many weeks, there's some very good news to report on the vaccine front in the COVID crisis. Drug maker Moderna says a large-scale clinical trial has shown its vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing the spread of the virus, and it has some advantages over the vaccine developed by Pfizer. Ted Chernecki reports. As COVID caseloads explode across the country and around the world in a second and possibly bigger wave, that much-coveted vaccine can't come quick enough. The United States continues to have the highest known caseloads and highest fatalities. My worst fear is what we saw happen in, in other countries where people were dying on the streets. People literally were dying in the waiting room of emergency rooms after spending 10 hours just waiting to be seen. That's going to start happening, and we will see the breadth and the depth of this tragedy. Last week it was Pfizer. Today it's Moderna out of Massachusetts. Both companies are reporting remarkable success rates for their vaccines. But unlike Pfizer's variant, Moderna does not require minus 75 degrees Celsius storage and can be warehoused in standard freezers. I think uh, with the data that we're presenting this morning, it's just hope that we should be able to get those vaccines soon into the marketplace to help vaccinate people at high risk to stop the pandemic. Both companies caution there's still more testing to do, but not that much. The first emergency inoculations could start by late December. So we are we are really excited about what this could mean for patients and we're working very closely with Operation Warp Speed. Canada is well positioned to start taking delivery, too well positioned according to The Economist. It's printed this graph showing how Canada has essentially hoarded vaccines, having placed orders for almost 10 doses per person from any one of five companies. Second is Australia with half that. Canada is one of the best positioned countries in terms of portfolio of vaccines. It's very exciting to hear that uh, there might be uh, two vaccines available uh, very soon. The Economist argues inoculating one country is both selfish and ineffective because this is a global problem needing a global solution. Still, Ottawa has 20 million doses on order for each of Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccines, with options to add to that. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Up ahead, the B.C. community taking a break from tourism. We're asking people to, to work with their accommodation providers and to reschedule how the district of Tofino is encouraging you to stay away. And big changes at a handful of ICBC offices. Why you better call ahead or go online before you show up. Traffic is still terrible over here in both directions at the Knight Street Bridge, but especially southbound where we're still dealing with a crash and traffic is down to just a single lane on the left. Kermat Collision and Auto Glass have been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Knight Street Bridge. 
After being COVID-free for months, Canada's most remote northern territory is suddenly dealing with a dangerous outbreak. The chief medical health officer in Nunavut has announced an emergency shutdown of all non-essential businesses and schools in the wake of a growing case rate. Nunavut didn't have its first case until November 6th, but thanks to community transmission, there are now 26 cases in a region that is ill-equipped to handle a major outbreak. As for the rest of the country, Atlantic Canada continues to fare well with just 10 new cases, eight of them in New Brunswick. Much worse is Quebec, which saw more than 1,200 new cases, and worse than that, 1,400 in Ontario. In Manitoba, which has the worst rate per capita in Canada, nearly 400 new cases and 10 more people died. 181 new cases in Saskatchewan, and Alberta has 860 new cases. Here in B.C., again, we have 646 new cases just today and nearly 2,000 over the past three days. As of today, Canada has exceeded 300,000 cases of COVID-19. Well, the explosion of COVID-19 cases in some parts of Metro Vancouver has two of B.C.'s most popular destination communities pulling up the welcome mat. As Kylie Stanton reports, Tofino and Euclid on Vancouver Island are asking lower mainlanders to stay away. The second wave of the pandemic is here, and with the number of new COVID-19 cases on the rise, changes are rolling in. It's all about protecting each other. The district of Euclid asking residents from the coastal and Fraser Health regions to stay away for at least the next week. Backed by Tourism Euclid and the Chamber of Commerce, it issued this notice on its website, kindly reminding Lower Mainland residents to avoid all non-essential travel to and from the region until November 23rd. Look, if you're from the mainland, mainland, you need to stay in the mainland. Not because we're being self-righteous here. We're just saying, look, you are deemed in the red zone and you need to follow it. The district of Tofino now echoing the call. We need to remember that this pandemic is still going on and we need to help keep each other safe. The request follows the provincial health officer's order against traveling to and from the lower mainland for non-essential purposes in an effort to get the case count there under control. But on Monday, Dr. Bonnie Henry took that a step further, urging all British Columbians to stay home. So now is not the time to travel for recreational or non-essential purposes, whether it's from the lower mainland to the island, whether it's between the interior and the north, or whether it's to and from other provinces in Canada. Visitors who had planned to travel to the Pacific Rim are being asked to speak with their accommodation provider and reschedule their trip for when it's safe to return, leaving that sector to shift their focus once again. Well, really hard to say how it's going to play out. I was full until January 8th, and uh, now we're getting daily cancellations. If it, the slack is uh, taken up by uh, local residents, then it should be okay, but each day is a different day with the calendar, and cancellations are a, a daily thing. The resources here are scarce and an outbreak would be devastating. The hope is people will do the right thing. Stay home to allow this region to stay safe. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The second wave of COVID-19 is sparking another change for our provincial auto insurer. ICBC has announced that effective Monday, November 23rd, five driver's license offices like this one at Surrey-Guildford will be appointment only. The other four are Burnaby Metro Town, Richmond Lansdowne, Kamloops, and Victoria Wharf Street. ICBC says it will ensure that the appropriate maximum number of people are in the office at any given time. 
There will be limited times for walk-ins. Drivers are asked to check the ICBC website for those times or to book an appointment. ICBC says based on the results of this pilot project, it could make the changes permanent down the road. Still ahead, childbirth takes a shocking turn for an expectant couple. Why they blame poor scheduling at the hospital for a preventable tragedy. Also coming up, the unusual online shopping habits of the Nova Scotia gunman prior to his rampage. Good evening, a tow truck has just arrived on scene to a two-car crash over here at the northbound at mid-span in the right lane. Traffic is backed up onto the east-west connector on the approach. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash at the Queensboro Bridge. There is new information coming to light about the man responsible for the shooting spree that killed 22 people in Nova Scotia last April. Elizabeth McSheffrey shows us the details of unusual online purchases and the travel habits, travel habits of the gunman leading up to the rampage. The details are part of a general warrant the RCMP obtained as part of their investigation into the killings. They say Wartman traveled regularly between New Brunswick and Maine, where he and a friend would shoot guns near the town of Haynesville. That friend told police they also attended several gun shows. The documents describe a particularly unusual road trip in 2019. On April 25th last year, Wartman and a friend crossed between Woodstock and Holton, returning to Canada two days later at 2.33 in the afternoon. They went back to Maine less than 20 minutes later and did not go back to New Brunswick until May 2nd. The unusual patterns extend to his internet browsing history as well. In 2019, the gunman read articles like 11 Things You Didn't Know About Cop Cars and Top 20 Non-Restricted Black Rifles in Canada. He also visited a website for customizing police identification cards, and one person interviewed by RCMP said Wartman bought police equipment from American auctions online. The gunman's paranoia and fear of COVID-19 are well known, and in an email on March 20th this year, he said once the money runs out, people will become desperate and they'll need guns. Thank God we are well armed. RCMP declined an interview for this story and have not provided one since June. The Mounties now say they won't be commenting on matters related to the shooting outside the public inquiry. Media outlets, including Global News, continue to press in court for the release of more police documents related to the massacre. Elizabeth McSheffrey, Global News, Halifax. A heartbroken B.C. mother and father are demanding change after the tragic death of their newborn this past summer. What happened at Royal Columbian Hospital is a nightmare they will never fully recover from. And as John Waugh reports, they blame the Fraser Health, or they blame Fraser Health, for some questionable staffing decisions. One hour and 37 minutes. Baby Isla's parents left to wonder how much of that time might have saved their newborn's life. I had to watch my baby's heart rate dropping on a monitor for an hour and 37 minutes. It's, it's like a slow torture. Castell says on August 18th, her planned induction at Royal Columbian Hospital soon turned into calls for an emergency C-section. The problem, both the obstetrician and anesthesiologist were tied up with other patients. It would take nearly two hours to get Castell into the operating room. Seeing my baby coming out dead 
due to lack of oxygen um, is enough to be scarred for life. Medical staff were able to resuscitate the newborn after 17 long minutes. Tragically, Isla would die nine days later. It's not when we said goodbye to Isla at Canuck Place that keeps me awake at night. It's the trauma of that situation of, of being unable to get the help that we needed. The parents have started an online petition demanding that the maternity unit have a dedicated anesthesiologist and second obsite obstetrician like at Surrey Memorial and the Women's Hospital. We've been asking for a dedicated obstetrical anesthesia program for over 10 years, and, um, and that uh, remains, unfortunately, not realized. Dr. Waterman says his unit is still safe for expectant mothers, but this is an obvious oversight. Fraser Health did not meet Global News' deadline for comment. It has been presented to you by top physicians in this area for the last decade, and you have chosen not to fund it. In the nine short days they got to know their daughter, these parents say Isla was feisty, a true fighter. For nine days, 24-7, I was there. Because that's all I had. So they say they'll fight to help other parents avoid this tragic heartbreak. In Isla's name. John Hua, Global News. A new UBC-led survey shows Canada's transgendered youth are more supported in their identities than they have been in the past. The research reveals more trans teens, 50% compared to 45% five years ago, are living in their felt gender full-time. The survey also shows more transgender youth are requesting their, their friends and families call them by their correct names and pronouns. 92% have asked their fellow transgender friends to do so, and 86% have asked their parents. Still ahead, the most boring YouTube channel on earth takes a dramatic turn. Like there was nothing I could do and it was terrifying. How she was the only one watching a pig pen live stream when the barn caught fire. But first, a U.S. dam blocking salmon from B.C.'s Similkameen River and now pressure to remove it. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A B.C. conservation group is calling on Washington State to tear down one of its obsolete hydro dams. The dam just south of the border hasn't produced hydropower since the 1950s. All it does now is block potentially millions of returning salmon. Where migrating salmon are concerned, dams are aptly named. If not properly planned, dams can totally block the migration of salmon. The Caribou Dam on the Brunette River in Burnaby prevented salmon from spawning upstream for decades. But that's no longer the case. They put in a fishway at this particular dam several years ago, and, and salmon have come back in very significant numbers, so it's been very, very positive. Some dams have been taken out altogether, like at the old Britannia mine site where seven were removed. Now, Mark Angelo is leading the charge to have another dam, the Enloe in Washington State, removed. That dam blocks access to literally 500 kilometers of prime salmon habitat, both in the main stem of the Similkameen and its tributaries. The Enloe was once a hydroelectric dam, but the powerhouse downstream's been out of commission since 1954. 
It always bothered me that the migration of salmon was totally blocked by a decrepit 100-year-old dam. It's particularly upsetting when you watch the salmon at the base of the dam, which, undeterred by generations of failure, continue to attempt the impossible leap to the other side. So those salmon will come back if only we give them the chance. Angelo has been trying to give them that chance for a long time now, and he hasn't been alone. There's interest both in Canada and the U.S. because if the dam were removed, that would open up uh, 40 or 50 kilometers of prime salmon habitat in the U.S. He believes that the time is at last right for change. What with the environmentally friendly governor of Washington having been re-elected and a new incoming U.S. federal government, perhaps all they need is encouragement. I think if British Columbia as a province takes a, a strong stance and, and talks about its interest in having this dam removed, I think that would carry a lot of influence. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. You know it's just a matter of time before that thing comes down. It's got to be. <laughs> or they could build a ladder, as you said. Or maybe, maybe a ladder they could build. Who knows? All right. Well, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, the wind warning, it's going to get blustery. They've already preemptively canceled some ferry sailings for right. tomorrow morning. Christy Gordon mm -hmm. joins us now to break it all down in the timing of this event. Christy. Yes, because the timing is always so crucial. So the overall event is really going to move in overnight and then continue through the morning hours. We're already seeing the rain from this. But in terms of the strongest winds, this is the timeline. So having a look at the graphic here, the outer and northern part of Vancouver Island will see the wind pick up overnight. Strongest winds for your region, likely out of the southeast through the overnight and especially the early morning hours. Then the bulk of those strong winds shift further inland. That's when we're really going to see the peak wind gusts for those inner coast as well as Metro Vancouver and Fraser Valley. I'm expecting the potential for strong winds in Metro Vancouver, likely in the late morning and then even into just the early afternoon hours. But it will die down quickly around 2, 3 o'clock. That's when everything will ease off. So there's the general wind warnings in red. I want to highlight we've had lots of report. Denman Island, hi to you there. Wet snow reported there. Same for Comox. Yes, it's cold enough that we could see some wet snow in a few areas, but it's going to warm up overnight. So you're expecting it to change over to rain and we're expecting snow on the uh, mountain passes. Connector and Coquihalla up to 20 centimeters and certainly all across these northern regions. So that band really shifts north into your region tomorrow morning. Heavy rain for the south coast along with the winds tomorrow morning. It eases to showers in the afternoon but we're going to continue to see snowfall along the mountain passes even into the afternoon hours tomorrow. So there's your forecast for tomorrow. Heavy snow in the north. Not much going on here but you can expect strong gusty winds for the south coast. The main event for is tomorrow morning early afternoon before it eases off and we are going to see unsettled conditions throughout much of the week but for the winds that's for sure and here's a look at our central windows weather window from Thierry uh, Goose he was up in Chequemist today and nice snowshoeing there thanks Thierry for that one looks lovely thank you Christy sure does thank you all right there's no hockey at the moment but that can't stop us from talking about the Canucks new retro reverse jerseys unveiled today I'm looking at Squire to gauge his reaction. We'll talk about that in a moment. No. How do you ever gauge Squire's reaction? <laughs> it's very difficult. The Vancouver Canucks will hit the ice in these for a few games this season with a revamped version of the 2001 Gradient altern Alternate Jerseys and Orca logo. Uh, the league says the new jerseys are a celebration of nostalgia. Here are some of the others. 
this, of course, is Colorado going with the old uh, Quebec Nordique look. I don't know what we're looking at now. Oh, Calgary. There's the flames. I don't know what retro reverse means, but it's another way to make money, I guess. Calgary... Is that cynical of me? <laughs> look, I love blue and green together. It looks fine to me, but there's a lot of negative, like Canuck Nation is not happy about the retro reverse, on Twitter at least. Well, the thing is, there is so many, and the Canucks have had three different logos, so there are a lot of ways you could have retro reversed things. You could have retro reversed the Flying V, or the Skate, or the original uniform, or even the Vancouver Millionaires uniform they wore once in the Heritage game. That was from like a very... Uh, brief period. short yeah very brief bad looking third jersey yeah. they had back in the day it's like uh, i don't get it at all and because when you say retro you think of something familiar mm-hmm. and comfortable <laughs> we're looking at that going what was that again? well you know what don't take it from me because for a lot of years i thought i looked good in a mustache and boy was i true. wrong true. uh not having his top running back seemed to be adversely affecting seahawks quarterback russell wilson it, it, I can feel it, you know. I, I just think it's been a little bit different. Seattle has lost three of its last four, and Wilson has ten turnovers in those defeats. Also coming up later, how the only woman watching an unusual live stream of a pig pen helped prevent disaster. The skate. The skate is my favorite. The skate should be, the, that should be the uniform right now, the skate. I would go with the skate. Yeah, I'd go with the skate. Um, There was a point last month when Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson was the MVP of the NFL. But they don't hand out that award in October. And Seattle has lost three of its last four. And those three losses, I have to say, are not entirely the fault of Russell Wilson. The defense, although it wasn't bad yesterday, hasn't been good. And Wilson is missing his first and second string running backs, Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde. And the Seahawks are a team that likes to run first and pass second. But in those three losses, Russell Wilson has seven interceptions and three fumbles. However, ten turnovers are not going to get him down. He is not short on belief of self. I I think that uh, the reality is I know who I am. You know, I know... I know that I'm a great football player. You know, I know I've been great. I know I will be great. I know I'll continue to be great. I know I, I know that uh, there, better, there are better days ahead. And so, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'll use a baseball analogy, but sometimes you go up to the plate, you know, and you don't have your way. What's well, that old song, Lord, it's hard to be humble? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, well, you know, he's channeling his inner Muhammad Ali there. The uh, Seahawks play Thursday night against Arizona, whom they lost to in overtime earlier this season. Uh, Carlos Hyde actually might be able to play. They still aren't sure if Chris Carson can play. Uh, They do miss Carson a lot. But even getting Hyde back would take some of the load off Russell Wilson because, as Pete Carroll says, without a strong running game, the Seahawks are a bit discombobulated. It's important to us. It really is. And and if if they're not able to, then we have to develop the other guys. We've got to make sure that we're going to it. And it's just part of the way we play. And and, uh, it's felt a little bit different. And I'd like to get us back to... Like I said, back to the kind of balanced approach that we've always had. Now, Dustin Johnson is not the most demonstrative guy. When he won the Masters yesterday, his initial celebration was rather subdued, unlike, say, Tiger's was last year. Instead of jumping up and down, as a lot of Masters winners do, 
He kind of looked like a guy who just won the Wednesday men's night, where the first prize is a left-handed wedge and a head cover. But after that, his emotions did get the better of him. With this final tap-in, Dustin Johnson not only clinched the Masters Championship, he set a tournament record low score. He played with such control and precision, the biggest surprise was when Johnson became unglued, receiving the green jacket. I've got a great team who <sighs> winning the Masters was, was a dream of mine as a child. So, yeah, in that moment, I just... I, I couldn't even couldn't even talk. I'm used to being on the golf course and playing, you know, playing in a golf tournament. I I can control my emotions and I can control what's going on, but in that moment I just yeah, I lost it, I guess. So not only did Tiger Woods put the green jacket on you, you also beat his record low score. Yeah, you know, Tiger, he's he's been a good friend of mine for, for a while now. Did he have an, anything to say to you? Yeah, he did. He, he just he told me how proud he was of me and, and then how much I deserved it. And Johnson will be back to defend his title in just five months because after this year's COVID delay, the Masters is scheduled to return to its traditional week in April. That's what I practice for. That's why I put in so much work to this game is, is to put myself in this position and, and to be where I'm at right now. A very different Masters yet meaningful as ever for the newly crowned champion. What will Gretzky family Christmas dinners be like? <laughs> Wayne will have all his cups and <laughs> Dustin Johnson, his son-in-law, will wear the green jacket. Family of high achievers, no doubt. Mm. Thanks very much, Squire. Let's check in with Jay Durant for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jay? Thank you, Sophie. We have more on today's COVID-19 update after record numbers over the weekend. Plus, as mentioned earlier, BC Ferries has canceled a number of sailings tomorrow morning in advance of an expected windstorm. They are the 5.15 a.m. and 7.45 a.m. Tawasson to Duke Point and Duke Point to Tawasson runs, as well as the 7 a.m., 9 a.m. Tawasson to Swartz Bay and Swartz Bay to Tawasson sailings. They're also canceling the 6.15 and 8.25 a.m. Horseshoe Bay to Departure Bay and Departure Bay to Horseshoe Bay sailings. We'll have those stories and more coming up tonight at 11. All right. Thanks, Jay. When we come back, a burning barn disaster averted because of the lone live stream viewer. That's coming up next. Watch the Global News and 980 CKNW Leadership Series every Saturday and Sunday in partnership with Fortis BC Energy at Work. Supposed to be a relaxing but very unusual Friday night viewing choice for a New York State woman became a life-saving one. She was watching a pig live stream online when she saw the animal knock over a heat lamp and start a fire. She immediately jumped into action, but getting help to the barn was harder than you might imagine. Of all the choices, all the places you could click, you see how fluffy that is? All the videos you could surf, why would anyone settle on a sleeping pig? It had to be one of the least interesting things on the internet. <laughs> yeah, she's not putting on a show or nothing. But it's all, it was also the least stressful. <laughs> With political tensions roiling, all Laura Palladino wanted that Friday night was a boring animal live stream. Unfortunately, her desire for drama-free programming came to a crashing halt after the pig knocked over a heat lamp, buried it in straw, and set the barn ablaze. And I started freaking out. And as if that wasn't enough. I was the only one watching. The only one in the world who knew what was happening. Which is what made like my heart sink. Like there was nothing I could do 
and it was terrifying. Yeah. Laura tried calling the farm, but no one answered. She even tried 911. But what were they going to do? She lived 80 miles away. That's why, deep down, Laura knew it was hopeless. But she kept trying different numbers anyway. And would you believe? They busted in. She finally got a hold of the farmer just in time. I started crying. Like, this is just a lot. And he was, like, holding her. He's like, I'm so sorry. Like, you could tell how much he loved those animals. I was like, oh, yeah. Hi, Laura. (laughs) This week, Laura traveled to June Farms in West Sand Lake, New York, to meet farm manager Josh Vicks. Thank you. Yeah. Josh had cared for that pig named Ethel since it was a piglet definitely inspiring to know that there are other people that feel as much affection and love towards these animals that we do. The only one uninspired was Ethel herself, who appears to have emerged from the ordeal completely unshaken. The farm can now proceed with its plan to breed Ethel, promising the first piglet will be named Laura. Never thought I'd have a pig named after me, but I'll take it. And we'll take her. Why not? As a reminder that most people are heroes just waiting for their moment. Hi, girl. Steve Hartman, on the road near Albany, New York. The question unanswered is, why were they live streaming the pig? We're not sure about that. Just in case that (laughs) happened. Yeah. Thank goodness they did. Foresight then. (laughs) Well done. Yeah. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night.